There was a complete humility with John the Baptist as he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who dies on the cross to take away the sins of the world. So the people began to see Jesus and his miracles and his words as being true, and many started to believe. Just who is Jesus? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. On our last broadcast, we looked at Jesus' own claim of deity found in the Gospel of John. But what does this mean for you and me? What does a personal relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus look like? Here's David with the conclusion of his message called, To Know Jesus. We live forever in Jesus. Heaven is our goal. Hell will never happen. And then also, no one will ever snatch us out of Jesus' hand. When you come to faith in Jesus, His huge, celestial, strong grip takes hold of your hand. And He leads you through life. And you follow Him like a sheep follows the shepherd. And here's what you need to know. When Marilyn and I had our little ones with us and we had to take their hands, whether crossing a street or in a crowd and we didn't want to lose them, whose hand is stronger? Well, of course, it's the parent's hand. And it doesn't matter how much that little hand of the little one wriggles trying to get away. Our hand is stronger and we'll never let go because we know we want to keep them from danger. The truth is with the father himself. Jesus says, I've got hold of your hand. My hand's stronger than yours. And no one, no thief, no villain, no person with ill will can come and snatch you out of my hand because my hand is stronger than your hand. And not only did Jesus say that no one can snatch you out of our hands, but Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39 said that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Life or death or angels or principalities, things present, things to come. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So no one or nothing can ever separate us from him. He's got our hand in his hand and his hand is stronger than our hand. And no one in this world or in all of eternity can ever snatch us from the hand of Jesus. What a great word. Now, some of you are asking, but wait a minute. I've been reading some about these Christians who are walking away from their faith. What do I do with that? And I've heard of other people who've walked away from their faith. And this says no one can snatch us out of his hands, but there are people who are saying they were Christians and now have walked away from their faith. Two thoughts. First of all, they could not have ever been born again. Some people had a warm, fuzzy, spiritual experience, but their hearts were never truly born again. So it could be they've walked away from something that never happened. That's a possibility. The second one is that maybe they're just going through a backsliding time. That happens sometime as well. But here's the deal. If they truly were born again, they'll come back again. There's a great phrase in the history of the church. You know somebody's a Christian if they're a Christian tomorrow. It's called the perseverance of the saints. True believers will one day come back. If they've wandered as a sheep, gone astray for a while, they will come back. They have to because the love of Jesus that's in their heart will force them to return to him. They will come back. So it may be on their deathbed. We don't know. But if they were truly born again, no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hands. Even if they've wandered, he will bring them home again. It will be proven in eternity. So this is a great promise to all of us who are his sheep. And Jesus says, you religious leaders are not my sheep. You don't know any of these realities. Then verse 30 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. I and the Father 
are one. I and the Father are one. There is a unionized, collaborative life that Jesus and the Father have together. And this idea of one doesn't mean like the Jehovah's Witness suggests when you point this verse to them when they say Jesus was a created being. It's not one in purpose and vision. It's one in essence. That's the meaning of the Greek. In fact, there is no the with the Father really in the Greek. It's put there to help us understand it. But it really is saying I and Father are one. Daddy and I are one of essence, of the same nature. And that's what Jesus is claiming here. Well, the Jews knew what he was claiming, folks. They knew he was claiming to be God. And in this verse 30, you see the Jews would say all throughout the day, what's called the Shema. It means here in the Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6, 4, behold, the Lord God is one. And they would say it throughout the day because they would be in a godless culture of polytheism, of people believing in many different gods. And they would say regularly, no, our God is one. And here Jesus says, yes, God is one. He affirms Deuteronomy 6, 4, but it's the first insight we perhaps have in a clear way of there being a plurality in the Godhead. One God here in two persons. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead in other places in the scripture. Why isn't he mentioned here? Could well be that the Holy Spirit's the silent sovereign. He loves just to point to Jesus. What a great example for all of us. You know, we're less. We want to be in the background. We just want to keep pointing to Jesus. But here we do have a clear claim. One God in three persons, Jesus equal with the Father. And the Jews, again, knew clearly what he was saying because look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Yet another time, they knew what Jesus was claiming. According to the law, if anyone uh, does blasphemy... Uh, considers themselves deity, it is an offense that brings about stoning, death, capital punishment. So they picked up the stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. So here's the trial motif again. He goes back to his good works. For which one of them are you going to stone me? I mean, which one of these good works that I've done, like healing a man born blind or giving the ability to walk to a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. Which one of these miracles are you going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They, they again, clearly understood the claim that Jesus was making. I am God. I am God in human flesh. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, this is a little bit complicated, but let me unpack it for you. Jesus said, why are you so upset with me saying that I am God in human flesh? I am the son of God for you in your own scripture. And he quotes Psalm 82, six. Now, in the context of that Psalm, there is all kinds of godlessness, especially toward the poor. There is injustice and groaning in the hearts of the poor. They are so put down by the powers and principalities of the government of that day 
The psalmist is saying, you need to look at the way you judges oversee the poor. Now, this word judges in Psalm 82.6 is Elohim. It's the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it is plural, and that's what's caused some people confusion as they look at Elohim in Genesis 1.1. But then later in Genesis 1.26 through 27, it, there are the words, let us make man and woman in our image. There is the sense of one God with a plurality of three in that very nature. So in Exodus 19, though, you have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, coming alongside him with all of the three million people and saying to him, you know, Moses, you're doing a great job leading all these three million people, but you can't keep doing all the judging just yourself. So Jethro said, please appoint judges who can help you judge the people. And the most severe cases can come to you, but they can take care of all these other issues out there. That word for judges is Elohim. Why? Because the office on this earth that is closest to the office of God in heaven is a judge. I had a judge one time come to me and meet with me and say, you know, one of the things I'm really struggling with is how do I bring together what the Bible says a judge should do, allow mercy and justice to kiss. And we talked about that because it was the difficult part of his job to follow the law, but also at times show mercy to people. Here, the judges were supposed to rule over cases and they were to bring justice, which is God's priority from heaven to earth. And again, the word that's used for judges is Elohim. Here's Jesus' argument. As judges were oppressing the poor in Psalm 82, I'm saying to you, Jesus said, that as judges represent God on earth to bring justice to earth, you use the word gods. Why is it such a hard thing for you to call judges, earthly human beings, gods, Elohim plural, because they're so close to representing God's nature here on this earth. And yet you have a problem with calling me the son of God. Again, after all of the works I've done, all the words I've taught you, why is this such a hard leap for you to come to understand me as the son of God? When you call your own earthly judges, gods themselves. That's the point he's trying to make here with these words. Then he goes on in verse 37 with this trial motif again. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the words that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So Jesus makes this argument that if you call judges gods, why is it so hard not to call me the son of God who has done all of these marvelous works? He also made the statement here a little earlier, and I want to make sure I cover it. And the scripture cannot be broken. Here's what he's saying is the scripture has a unity from Genesis to what we have now as Revelation. And that Unity cannot be broken that what the scripture teaches is consistent throughout all of its nature. And let me just make one more statement regarding Moments of Hope Church, folks. I believe the scripture cannot be broken. I believe one of the reasons the scripture is the word of God is because Jesus believed it was the word of God. And if he's God in human flesh, his view toward the scripture that he quoted all the time must be God's word. His apostles wrote the New Testament. He appointed them to do so and said, your words are my words. If he's God, then their words are the word of God. 
God. That's why we believe the Bible is truth. Its unity is amazing. It cannot be broken. Its truth is truth. And dear friends, whatever the Bible says regarding immorality or greed or generosity or humility or arrogance or any of those issues, that's what we believe. Because the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus, with quoting Psalm 82, 6 here, is making a clear claim to his belief. The Bible is the word of God. Then he said, look at my works again. And they heard him say clearly, the father's in me and I'm in the father. They're one, verse 30. And what did they do? They sought to arrest him, but he escaped out of their hands. We don't know how. We don't know if he just melted into the crowds maybe or did some kind of miraculous something that blinded them for a moment or stunned them for a moment. This text doesn't tell us, but he was able to escape them. Bottom line is his time had not yet come. What's his time? The time to be arrested and to go to the cross. It had not yet come. God's got his time, folks, for everything. Again, if you're waiting on something from the Lord, you know it's a promise from him. Wait on him. He's faithful. That time just hasn't yet come. And this is how it ends in verses 40 through 42. He, Jesus, went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So Jesus went to a place where John was previously baptizing people. You see that in John, the first chapter and into the third chapter as well. And Jesus went there because that was an area of Israel where the Jewish leaders had no authority. So knowing that his time had not yet come, he went there for maybe a time of rest, maybe a time of refreshment, but it appears that he kept on preaching, maybe even doing miracles there, though the text doesn't say so. It caused many people, though, to remember John the Baptist and his teachings about Jesus. If you haven't been with us since John 1, John the Baptist looked at Jesus, his cousin of six months younger in birth, and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said about Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist said about Jesus, I'm not worthy to tie or untie his sandals. There was a complete humility with John the Baptist as he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who dies on the cross to take away the sins of the world. So the people began to see Jesus and his miracles and his words as being true. And many started to believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, God in human flesh. He and the Father are one. The Father's in Him. He is in the Father. And He came to this world. Did you catch this in these verses? The Father consecrated Jesus. There was a point in heaven when in our sinfulness and we're heading toward hell that the Father said to the Son, I want you to go and die on the cross for the forgiveness of those people's sins. And he consecrated the son when the son said, yes, I'll go. Now, what's consecrated? 40 plus years ago, dear friends, after my call into the ministry and my call to a former church, I I bent my knees and the elders of the church came around me and they placed their hands upon me to consecrate that call. It means to set apart that call and make it holy. Make it different for me and the unique call that God had on my life. Similarly, the son bowed his head and the father 
consecrated him and the call that he had placed on his life to come into this world. And not only was he consecrated, but Jesus said, and sent into the world. That the Father said, I want you to go. And the Son humbled himself and said, yes, I'll go. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, leaving the splendor of heaven to enter the squalor of this world, putting on human flesh, born in a smelly, rancid stable, uh, to a mom who was probably an early teen and didn't really know anything except the angel of the Lord had told her this child was special unto the Lord. And she raised him faithfully and he obeyed the perfect law of God in every way. He did what we couldn't do because we were born in Adam in a sin nature that rebels against God. He was born by the power of the Holy Spirit without that sin nature. But he was God in human flesh, totally man, totally human, totally man living the life none of us can live in perfection, becoming the second Adam, what God intended Adam to be. And then going to that cross to take the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we can have the gift of eternal life and never perish. That's why Jesus came. May I ask you this question? Do you believe in him today? Do you believe in him? If you do, you know all those promises about being a faithful follower of Jesus and being one of his sheep. Those great promises of hearing his voice and knowing him personally, of following him faithfully, of having the gift of eternal life, never perishing and knowing that you'll never be snatched out of his hand. All of those are great promises and they can be yours today by grace through faith. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about the importance of being married to your very best friend. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center. And the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals. And, and we just thank you, Moments of Hope, and just this couldn't be, this wouldn't be possible without you guys. And, you know, uh, the, the first call we made uh, when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the Moments of Hope. And it was, uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um, everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also sewed into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up all the meals will shift to the dream center with the kitchen you helped us do so we're so grateful for you guys god bless you god bless moments of hope and we just Pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much.
I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Jen. Great to be with you. Well, in this morning's e-devotion, you wrote about being married to your best friend. This this sounds like really good advice. Oh, it is good <laughs> advice. And it came from my wonderful dad who was married to my mom for 63 years. Wow. They had a great loving relationship. It also reminds me of my wife, Marilyn's mom and dad, and they're both still living and they been married 68 years. My hat is tipped to both of our family heritage passed on to us. We've been married 43 years, and I can honestly tell you that my wife, Marilyn, is my best friend. And those 43 years just don't seem long enough. They've been so much fun together. And dad was trying to tell me when he adjured me through the years to marry my best friend, the importance of friendship in marriage. Because you know, Jen, you can leave your partner. You can't leave your best friend. And Marilyn and I have a life that's been inextricably intertwined by all of our life experiences together. But mostly, I just like her. She's Mm. just wonderful to be with. She's easy to talk to. And if I had one day to live and I was asked, with whom do you want to spend that one day? I would say unequivocally and immediately, Marilyn, my (laughs) wife, please, because she's not only my wife, but she is my best friend. So the message here for people today is to become one flesh with your husband or wife. And the way you can do that best is by spending time together. You know, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Husbands, your wives spell love, T-I-M-E. And it should be vice versa. And when you're together, just ask this very simple question. How's your heart? Husbands, ask your wives, how's your heart? Let her tell you what's going on inside of her. Wives, ask your husbands, How's your heart? And when he gets up from fainting, you know, trying to get in touch with his emotions and feelings, and he then shares with you what's going on inside, you grow closer and closer together as friends. And it's just so beautiful to have that kind of best friends in marriage because best friends always stay together and best friends are lovers at all times. Proverbs 17, 17. Again, one final thought on this. It's really easy to leave your spouse. It's impossible to leave your best friend. My dad's advice to all of us marry your best friend. I love this so much. And for those who I feel like didn't necessarily start off marrying their best friend, um, you know, if whether it was a quick engagement into marriage or whatever, you could develop friendship now. Exactly. Find an experience you both like or or sacrifice and, and you know, go mountain climbing or something, you yeah. know, that your spouse likes and just start sharing adventures together. Exactly. And when you find common loves and mm-hmm. joys, then you can develop a new way of your heart's connecting. But Jen, I would even say, even if you're totally different and the guy likes to exercise and the woman likes just to sit and read or whatever, just get out together and opposites should attract as well. Mm -hmm. And when you have a spouse who's different than you are, learn from her, learn from him and enjoy that part of your partner's life. And that should increase your joy and friendship together as well because you realize I didn't marry somebody exactly like me and that's teaching me how to love 
at a deeper level. I think that's important too. I do too. This has been so fun. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And I hope Chris is your best friend. He is. Yeah, Marilyn's <laughs> mine as well. And everybody, I hope your spouse is too. And if you're looking for a spouse, look for someone who can be your best friend. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there for these daily Davidisms from my heart to yours, free of charge to begin each one of your days with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. We would love to have you join us for worship this Sunday morning. We meet at Providence Day School located at 5800 Sardis Road in South Charlotte at 10 a.m. You can find more information on our website, momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope. And also check out David's Hopecast. They're both free and available at momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for those who have lost loved ones through COVID.